But just by way of introduction, there are, like I mentioned, there are several themes that we've been introduced to. And if you can, if you can just imagine with me the book of Acts like a timeline. When you start out in chapter one, in chapter one, verse eight, we get kind of a, a trajectory, an outline for the book. Jesus tells his apostles, he says, you will be my witnesses after you've received power from the Holy Spirit. And he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he, he gives them this outline in chapter 1. Chapter 2 comes, and there's the fulfillment of power bestowed on them through the Spirit at Pentecost. And then you begin these uh, what we call persecution cycles. From chapters 3 to chapter 7, there are three cycles of persecution. In chapters 3 and 4, and in each one of these cycles, you have a description of the apostles' ministry followed by persecution. That's what we call the persecution cycle. And so in chapter 3, you have a description of their ministry. In chapter 4, you have a description of the persecution. Chapter 5, you have the same cycle. Repeat again. With each cycle, there's escalation. In the first cycle, the, the apostles are merely warned. In the second cycle... They're arrested and they're flogged. They're beat, a, beat on a little bit. And then in the third cycle, blood is finally shed when they kill Stephen in chapter 7. And so, so basically throughout the book, you see these, these themes being a foundation for these themes being laid. And, and the, the overarching theme is sort of, I call it the greatness of God. And the first one is that the glory of God is too great to be contained in one place. Stephen makes this point in his sermon about the temple. He says that, that because the, 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 when they arrest Stephen, we'll see this in a minute, so maybe, but uh, when they arrest Stephen, their accusation against him is that he has been speaking against this holy place. And they mean the temple in Jerusalem. And so Stephen, his whole sermon, as lengthy as it is, it's one long defense that God is not contained by the temple. He's not contained by the land of Israel. Um, and we'll see that as we go on. So the glory of God is too great to be contained in one place. So even though Christianity was birthed in Jerusalem, Christianity was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. All right, so we're, we're in the context of the sovereign plan of God. Secondly, the grace of Jesus Christ is too great to be confined to one people group. So even though the Jewish people were used by God to bring about the birth of Christianity, Christianity was never intended to remain with only the Jewish people. And we, so, so we see this going out. And then the power of the Holy Spirit is too great to be controlled by anyone. We'll see this especially uh, in, in, our, in our chapter today. Before we get rolling in the text, I want to pray uh, that God would help me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity, and I do just ask for your help. ask that you would help the audience here uh, to listen well and to receive um, what you have for them. Father, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly what's in your text and in the book of Acts, and uh, just pray for your guidance here among us. Pray that you... Uh, would reveal yourself to us, God. You're, you're a God who is on the move and you're taking your grace and your mercy to the nations and you're using the church to do it. And we pray, Father, that we would find our own story here in the book of Acts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the big idea of Acts chapter 8 is, like I said, we've got several themes converging here. Uh, but the sovereign spirit of God directs the church's mission. The power of God is freely given to all who receive it by faith, but only to those who receive it by faith. Believers are empowered by the Spirit, but they are never masters over the Spirit. And we're going to go through the the text a section at a time, but we see in Acts 1 through 8 that God uses the suffering of the saints to advance his redemptive plan and bring salvation to the Samaritans. So God uses suffering saints to, to forward his redemptive plan. So jumping back to 758, it says, They cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles they were they were really good at hiding they they had a lot of experience with that right devout men buried stephen and made great lamentation over him but saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison now those who were scattered went about preaching the word now in the same way if you remember peter's sermons in acts chapter 2 and in acts chapter 3 he mentions that all that Jesus endured at the hands of the Jewish leaders and at the hands of the Romans uh, in the Gospels, he says that was according to the predetermined plan of God. And so he, he says that doesn't remove your moral culpability. You're still wrong for handing Jesus over to the Romans, he says to the Jewish people, and the Romans are still guilty for killing the Lord of life. He says, but... You can rest assured that everything that has happened, everything that has transpired in the life of Jesus in his death and his resurrection was according to the will of God because it's through the death of Christ that God now offers forgiveness of sins. To you Jews who handed him over to the Romans, to you Romans who nailed him to the cross, uh, to you people sitting in city church in, tw- in the 21st century, Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And so he says it's, it's this amazing, abundant offer of forgiveness in the grace, by the grace of God. And so in the same way that everything that happened to Jesus was part of the predetermined plan of God, Luke wants us to see that everything that happens to the church, to the apostles, is according to the predetermined plan of God. And so... God is in no way out of control when this persecution breaks out. Does that remove the moral culpability of these religious leaders who stoned Stephen? No. Does it remove the moral culpability of the Apostle Paul who devotes his life to ravaging the church? No, it does not. But there's never a moment when God is not in control. Everything is going according to plan. Now, so, but it says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then here we have the, back in Acts 1-8, the, the divine plan. You'll receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Luke has given us this blueprint for where he's going. 
And he, he clues us in here in uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. You should underline this in your Bible. It says they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so Luke is, he's consciously cluing you in that this is the next phase of the mission. We're moving on from Jerusalem and we're going out to Judea and Samaria. So everything's going according to plan. So God uses suffering of the saints to bring salvation to the Samaritans. The text says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So he gets, he goes down to Samaria. Many of you, if you've been in church for a long time, you may, you may be well familiar with the tension between the Samaritans. If, so the Jews and the Samaritans, there were, there were basically two tensions. One was racial and one was religious. The racial tension had to do with the fact that, uh, you can read about this in 2 Kings 17. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. You may remember that the kingdom of Israel was divided. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and uh, their standard policy was to was forced expatriation. So they would come in, they would take people who lived in a particular area and they would take them and transplant them to another area because people who don't have national roots and national identity are easy to control. And so they want to keep they want to keep people disoriented. They want to, them to lose a sense of who they are culturally. And so they, they take the people of Israel away, or the majority of the people away, and then they bring in other people. In verse 24 of 2 Kings 17, says the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and several other places and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And so whatever Jewish people were left in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, they then intermarried with these new people who had been transplanted. And so the Jewish people in in Jerusalem, they regarded the people of Samaria as a mongrel race. They didn't consider them to be truly Jewish. And they resented the fact that these people claimed to be Jewish and that they claimed to worship Yahweh. Jesus experienced the same racial tension with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when he began, he asks her for a drink and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John helps us out with that parenthetical note. It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But not only was there a, rela- a racial tension, but there was also a religious tension. And this comes out in John 4 as well. The woman asks uh, at an awkward moment when she wants to change the topic. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, I mean, a mountain in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, that, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus answered this way. He said, woman, believe me, the, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, you Samaritans, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, meaning that God was using the Jewish people to bring forth his redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. Verse 23 says, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship himself. And so even 
when Jesus in his in his earthly ministry, he was making the point in his preaching that Jerusalem's not big enough for God, that God is really after the whole world. And there's coming a time when God is is opening up his arms wide to all the nations to come and worship him in spirit and truth. And uh, again, I mentioned that Stephen, the, the accusation against him was that uh, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And so Stephen is talking not to Samaritans, but he's talking to the Jewish rulers. And so what this shows us is that the same tensions that that Samaritan woman felt, the Jews felt. They thought this is an irreconcilable difference between our people because we insist that God dwells here in Jerusalem and the Samaritans insist that God dwells here in Samaria. In the ancient world, uh, deities were were associated with geographical locations. And you, you see this throughout the Old Testament, but you also see God define it throughout the Old Testament. And so this is definitely their worldview. They think, well, that's if, if is God the God over Jerusalem and Israel, or is he the God over where we live? And so in their, in their worldview, travel was risky, because if you went outside the land of your God, you were exposed, right? And you better, you better offer a sacrifice to another God while you're visiting your cousins over in this neighboring land so that you could make sure that he was satisfied with you, that he was happy. And so they had this very uh, geographical idea about about God's being bound to territories. But anyway, uh, so Stephen, when they say he speaks against this place, these Jewish leaders, he preaches this long sermon, and he be- he opens the sermon by saying, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Why did, why does he mention specifically? Is it just a is it just a detail that he's casually offering? I don't think so. I think he's He's opening a sermon by saying, the God of glory appeared to Abraham not where the temple is, not even in the land of Israel. He appeared to him out in Mesopotamia when, by the way, he was an uncircumcised Gentile, not when he was a faithful Jew. But he revealed to himself in Mesopotamia. And then it says he called him to come down to the land of Canaan. And the whole time that he dwelt in the land of Canaan, it says God never gave him ownership of the land. He never owned it, but God was with him. And God blessed him. And then the children of Israel made their way down to Egypt, where they became slaves for 430 years. They were outside of the promised land. They were nowhere close to a temple of Yahweh. But who shows up to rescue them? Yahweh, because he's not bound by the geographical locations. And in his climax of his sermon is that David found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is the this is the conclusion of his sermon. This is his main point, and he quotes. And then he quotes God Himself, saying, "Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me?" Meaning, it's not possible for you to build a house that could hold me. Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? How could you ever think that you could make a house that could hold me? So that's that's the the climax of Peter of uh, Stephen's sermon, and then he says immediately after that he says, "You guys are stiff-necked. You've never listened to the Holy Spirit." 
And he's, what he's saying is that all of Scripture's testimony is that God is too big for Jerusalem and you missed it. You didn't listen. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to you through the text and you haven't heard it. So the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. So the question is, what is it that was being said by Philip? I think it was the same message that Jesus was bringing them, the same message that Stephen was communicating to the Jewish. That's the trajectory uh, the trajectory of the book of Acts that it's taken us on is that this message that God can't be contained by the temple and he can't be contained by the Holy Land. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So here's the, here's the question that I want to ask from this passage is that, so as we're, as we're thinking about who the Samaritans are and these tensions that exist between, uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, the, it was, it's not as though they were just foreigners. All right. They were not just people who were unfamiliar, who spoke a strange language or, or whatever. They, th- these people were despised by one another. You know, Philip would have been despised in the eyes of the Samaritans and the Samaritans uh, I mean, I'm not saying Philip did, but his culture, they would have expected to be despised by Philip. And so when Philip shows up and he starts preaching that it's no, that this, these irreconcilable differences about the temple, about where we should worship, are no longer an issue because the grace of God is greater than any one place and God is on the move to take the gospel to take his grace out to the nations and to welcome all people uh, into his grace. And he demonstrates that through these miracles. He's casting out uh, spirits. They came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so these uh, Samaritans say, oh, we're in. Racial factor is no longer an issue because God is now extending his grace to all all people groups from every place. And the place where we worship is no longer an issue. And then Philip meets a divine pretender. The great power of God is confronted and confounded by the true power of God. Verses 9 through 13 say, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody Great. Uh, wow. And they all paid attention to him from the least to greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They bought, in, they bought it. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with, their, with his magic. Uh, most scholars think that Simon himself is probably not a Samaritan. In, in the ancient world, uh, magicians and also philosophers used to travel around. They were mainly itinerant. They would go from city to city. Uh, magi- in the case of magicians, they would do some things that would wow people, and they would do it for money. All right. And so most people think that one of the reasons that Luke selected this passage uh, or this story to tell about Philip was that in the early days of the church, in in that world where philosophers and magicians were going around from town to town taking money for what they had to offer, many people were accusing the apostles and the church's missionaries of being the same kind of people. Oh, they're just coming to get our money. They're just traveling around just like the philosophers do, just like the magicians do. And so 
This is uh, what we'd call a, a distinguishing story. So the, uh, Luke has, has put this story in here to show distinctly that the apostles were not interested in money. Uh, and even more importantly, that you'll see they're not even that interested in power for its own sake. They're not, they're not overly impressed with their own power. They're not using the power to build up themselves or to make a name for themselves. You certainly never see them calling themselves great. Throughout the book of Acts, you'll also see passages where the, the, where deity or divinity is being attributed to people. And the people who don't defer that ascription, the people who don't say, hey, don't worship me, it never turns out well for them. And so this is one of the early instances of that where people are calling Simon the great power of God, and nowhere in this text does he deny it, even when he makes his so-called profession of faith. And then chapter 12, you're going to see people call Herod the voice of God in uh, later on in Paul's missionary journeys, people are going to confuse him and Barnabas with Zeus and Hermes. And there, and you'll always see the apostles. Whenever the apostles are attributed the, the power of God, they always deflect it. They always say, it, it's, I am not God. Uh, Peter in chapter 3, he says, Why do you stand gazing at us as though by our own power or piety we've made this man whole? It wasn't me. It was God. That's a good lesson for us. As you're even even in non-miraculous situations, if you find a hurting person and you speak life into them, they can very easily put you on a pedestal and start relating to you as though you're a, an angel or something. And you need to you need to be quick to deflect that kind of glory. Give don't give all the glory to God and let the glory be his alone. But it says that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man's the power of God that's called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Clinton Arnold, uh, he's talking about the magic in the Roman world. He just says, The people of the era did not have a passive attitude toward divine power. They wanted to be strengthened by receiving it. So we shouldn't think about magicians in the Roman world as merely entertainment like we do today. In the Roman, Ro- the Roman world was animistic. People believed that there were spirits everywhere, that everything was energized by spirits. There was, they believed literally there was a devil under every bush. Right? And that, and, and if you're going to live in that kind of world, you better know how to control those spirits. And so magic was a huge fixation for people. They wanted to know because of fear, how do I protect myself from these things? How do I make sure things are going to go my way? A fear and a desire for control. Uh, and, of course, in the case of Simon and magicians like him, they wanted power out of greed. And we'll see that. And so they didn't have a passive attitude. They didn't just go to the magic show to see the magician work. But they were actively seeking, how can we get these power? I'm going to go down and talk to Simon, see if he can help me out with this problem. So more like a shaman uh, in, a, in a tribal culture. And so, yeah, the desire for power can be driven by greed or the desire for power can be driven by fear. And we still see that today, don't we? I mean, all over we see people driven by desiring power for, for greed, for exalting themselves, for making things go their way. Probably more often, uh, especially in the circles that we move in, I feel like I see people driven. They would desire to get power because of fear. 
Uh, a lot of times they've experienced some kind of trauma in their life and they've told themselves, I'm never going to let that happen to me again and I'm going to do everything that I can to maintain control. Uh, I'll manipulate what i got to manipulate and I'll connive what i got to connive, but I'm not going to let anybody get one over on me again like that. If we live in a fear-driven context, a fearful culture, uh, there's a desire for power. So Paul says this about power. He says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So the gift that God has given you is a gift of power. But how is it, what does this power mean for our life? It means that we are not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The idea of being empowered by God's spirit in, in, in the New Testament is exactly, uh, it, it's counterintuitive to what most of us think about power because when we think about getting power for self-protection, if I have power, then I don't have to worry. If I have financial power, I don't have to worry about something unexpected coming up. If I've got uh, social influence, social power, then I can probably persuade people to go the way that I would like them to go. I can smooth the way for myself. But in the New Testament, the consistent message is that when God gives us power, it's not power to leverage for our own sakes. It's power to leverage, one, on behalf of the powerless. We see those without power, and we have a responsibility to leverage our power on their behalf. So he's given us a a spirit of power and love and self-control. And then also he gives us power to be fearless in the face of suffering. He says, through the Holy Spirit promise of God, you've got such a tremendous future waiting for you beyond this life. God has promised you every good thing. He's promised you an inheritance with Christ that you'll reign together with Christ. And so in a very real sense, we can be fearless in this life. And that is what the, what, what the Bible calls us to. It calls us to a radical abandonment of self-interest for the sake of advancing the gospel and loving people. And that's radical discipleship. He says, but he says that's what the spirit that God gives us is all about. It's not about fear. It's not about worrying if I'm not going to have enough. It's not about worrying if I'm not, you know, nobody's going to pay attention to what I'm saying. It's not worrying about whatever. But he says it's, it's a spirit that brings power, a spirit that empowers us to love, and a spirit that empowers us to control ourselves. Amen. That's some power we need. Verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, so they had been believing Simon the sorcerer, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized in, uh, they were baptized both men and women. So this tells us that the content of what Philip was preaching was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. And I, I suspect that when he's preaching the kingdom of God, he's preaching that the kingdom of God is bigger than Jerusalem, right? That God, the kingdom of God is advancing. He's probably quoting Jesus when Jesus talks about how the kingdom of God is like a little leaven and we just got to get a little leaven in there with the Samaritans and let that thing grow, right? We're taking, we're spreading the leaven of the kingdom everywhere. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, 
and seeing the signs and great miracles he performed, he was amazed. And so there's an intended irony here that Luke puts in there because previously he had amazed all of the Samaritans. And this word in Greek, there are a couple of words in Greek that can be translated amazed. This one means like to be out of your mind, like to be beside yourself, like twilight zone. I can't wrap my head around what's going on right now, right? It's so crazy. And so it says the people were that way. They were just amazed by the things that he was doing. And it says that when he's confronted with the true power of God, he can't wrap his brain around it. He doesn't. And I I was trying, I was thinking about this, like I was thinking about Acts chapter 3 again, where if you've ever seen someone who's who's been lame for many, many, many years, I mean, their, their muscles atrophy and they just have, you know, sticks with skin over them. And can you, can you imagine being there when Peter grabs that guy by the wrist and pulls him to his feet and suddenly his legs are not sticks anymore, but they're, they're filled out with muscle and full, you know what I mean? Like you'd be like, I gotta sit down. I cannot, right? And you, like it says in Acts chapter three, this guy was a fixture. Everybody knew him. Everybody had seen him. And so Simon is just beside himself when he's confronted with the kind of miracles that that uh, Philip is doing by the power of God. Number three, the gift of the Spirit is freely given but refuses to be contained, controlled, or manipulated by human masters. We're going to break this into two parts. The gift of the Spirit is freely given to genuine believers. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. I know this is kind of a controversial passage for for some parts of the church, and I don't have time to really unpack it. So let me just say that my understanding of the text is that this is what I would call the Samaritan Pentecost. In the same way that in Acts chapter 2, the, the church in Jerusalem received power that inaugurated the, the witness of the church. In the same way, the Samaritans, they've believed in Christ, but this was sort of a confirming event that inaugurated the inclusion of the Samaritans into the church because there was such hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans and and by the way, if you you're going to see this controversy become even more prominent when the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, when we get to chapters 10 and 11 of Acts, and, and I think that's exactly what's going on with Cornelius in chapter 11, is that you have then have a Gentile Pentecost of sorts, where the the Spirit is poured out to signify that Gentiles are now included among the people of God, because the Jewish leaders. I mean, frankly, they needed a sign from God. They needed a a clear, undeniable move of the Spirit that confirmed that God was indeed in bringing these people in. And so it removes, it it helps to, even though though it did produce a lot of controversy, which we're going to see. And if you read Paul's letters, you'll see that controversy even in there, in his letter to the Galatians. Even though it did result in some controversy, at least they had a clear, they had something concrete that they could all point to and say it's clear. And Peter does this in chapter 11 after he shares the gospel with Cornelius and Cornelius accepts the gospel. 
when he goes back to Jerusalem, the apostles are like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing preaching the gospel to Gentiles and going in and eating with them? And, and he says, well, uh, I had a dream. And so I went. God told me to go, so I went. And when I got there, they all started speaking in tongues just like we did at the very beginning. And so, you know, if God has accepted them, who are we to reject them? And so God gives these these concrete, definitive signs that he's expanding the kingdom and, and including new people. So that's what's going on here. This, And so this suggests that these guys are... Uh, these Samaritans are genuine believers. Says they had not, the spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It says now, when Simon saw that the spirit was being given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So the way that Luke frames the action, he doesn't include Simon in with this group of Samaritans who are receiving the Holy Spirit, but he frames them as being outside the action. And he sees what's going on. They're laying their hands on him. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. And then he offers them money. And he says, give me this power also that, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And here's Peter's advice. Repent. Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That phrase, gall of bitterness, is used in Deuteronomy chapter 29 to uh, talk about those who are apostate, those who are cursed by God and separate, separated from God. Um, so I think this is definitely telling us that Simon was not, even though he believed and he had made a profession of faith, he was not a genuine convert. And so uh, Peter's telling him that what he needs to do is to get right with God. He says, your heart is not right with God. Oh, and that's, that's uh, Simon's face. Right there. <laughs> what? Oh. So what's, what's the deal? I've been, this is probably the part of the passage that I've really been thinking about this week is... Um, when Simon saw that the Spirit was being given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You know, I think Simon was so fixated with being the great power of God that he, what he couldn't cope with, because somehow he, he was just as fascinated with all the miracles that the apostles were doing, just like all the other Samaritans were. But it seems like somehow he missed the message, right? Peter says, repent. He, he, he saw the miracles, but he missed the message. And I think that he didn't have ears to hear because he was so focused. He so identified with being the great power of God for the Samaritans, being the great power of God for people. And true conversion requires that we give up being the great power of God. And this is kind of what the, the heart of this passage, the whole, the whole Simon story is about. In the same way that Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's hard for a powerful man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard to divest yourself of something that you've identified yourself with for so long in order to genuinely receive Christ. I love, I thought when I'm reading this, I'm thinking about John the Baptist. 
And I love the, the gospel writers, they, they quietly applaud John the Baptist. And they say that he was asked and he, if he was the Christ. And it says, and he did not deny, but he confessed. And it almost sounds like he's about to say, I am the Christ, because he says, I didn't, he didn't deny, but he confessed. But his confession was, I am not the Christ. I'm just the voice of one in the wilderness crying out, make ready the way of the Lord. And so I think about all the things that we identify ourselves with. Are we willing to just be voices in the wilderness, calling out, make ready for the way of the Lord? Are we willing to divest ourselves of those things that we identify with that give a, that give us a sense of power, that give us a sense of significance? And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. I hope he repented. I, uh, church history says he did not. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So let's just move into application. Here's three warnings from Simon the magician. The warning against self-deception. I think Simon really believed that he was a believer. I think he really thought that he had bought into it, that he was on board. He saw the miracles Philip was doing. says he was baptized and he continued with Philip. Don't confuse head belief with heart belief. Don't think just because you, you, you know about the power of God that you've experienced the power of God. There was an article in Christianity Today this, this week actually called The Unsaved Christians from a book. And he, he uh, takes Matthew 7 where Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then they talk about all the things they did. And this is Dean and Sarah's contemporization of this. He says, didn't we say grace before dinner? Didn't we vote our values, Lord? Didn't we believe prayer should be allowed in school? How can I not be a Christian if I believe that? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we believe in God? Didn't we get misty eyes when we heard God bless America at a baseball game? (laughs) Didn't we give money to the church? Of course I'm a Christian. Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and faithful? And his point is that all these things are kind of identity markers of Christians in our culture that we can use to deceive ourselves, and they become counterfeits for a living relationship with God. So self-deception, syncretism. Syncretism is, my, my, my working definition of syncretism is trying to achieve my old worldly goals with the power of God, trying to leverage the power of God to achieve my same goal. So, uh, uh, you know, so you, you say, let's say somebody got saved in college and in college they just believed that they were going to go and they were going to do something. They were going to pursue their career and they were going to distinguish themselves and be the best in this career. And then they get saved and they don't ask God what he desires for this. They just baptize their their old desire and want to leverage the power of God to achieve it. But the Christian the the message of the New Testament is that there needs to be a fundamental shift in our orientation. When we become a Christian, our goals may need to change. All of the goals, all of the dreams that we have have to be taken and laid down at the feet of Jesus Christ because he has told us why he created us. He created us to glorify him in relationship, 
and he created us to make disciples of all the nations. And so if your dreams are competing with that mission, then your dreams have got to die. And so beware of syncretism of just taking Jesus and adding him on to what you've already got and asking him to baptize all your plans and dreams. Um, be ready to die to self and to give up everything to follow Jesus. Um, and this is what Simon couldn't do. He just wanted to add Jesus. If you have Hindu uh, friends, if you work with Asians uh, from Hindu backgrounds, syncretism is a big problem in witnessing to Asians because there's a real tendency for them to... They're all Hindus are already worshiping so many gods that it's easy to just take Jesus and add him right in there and say, well... I need a blessing from as many gods as I can get. So I'm going to go ahead and take your God and add him here and make sure that I'm covered. But they, they have to, and they often don't recognize the need to forsake all other gods and turn to the one true God. So we need to be clear about that in our witness. And then superstition. You know, there very well may be a devil under every bush. Uh, the, the Bible is very clear that there are spiritual forces in the world that are a reality. And so there really are uh, spiritual entities in the world. And so there, there may be, but the message of the New Testament is that we don't have to fear them because the power that is in us is greater than the power that is in the world. And so we don't need to countenance fear no matter how many. And, and the Bible does present a picture that we are in a warfare context. So we're not living in peacetime. We're in warfare. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we're surrounded by the enemy. But again, the message of the New Testament is that if Christ is in you, you can live fearlessly. You have to, you should have no fear of the demonic as long as you are seeking Christ. And if you're genuinely a Christian, because I hear people, a lot of times people will rebut and say, unless you open yourself up to the devil. But I'm like, if you're walking with Christ, why would you? Why would you ever give the devil invite the devil in if you've experienced the power of Christ, if you know his love and his mercy and all that he's done for you. What, what's tempting? What does the devil have to offer? And, of course, I know we talked about fear. And so in the, the, the answer to superstition is building our confident faith that God can take care of us, that you can really risk yourself. And if you get hurt, God can heal you. If you get killed, God will resurrect you. We have a promise from him. We don't have to walk in fear. And so, yeah, so back to these three points. The glory of God's too great to be contained in one place. The grace of Jesus Christ is too great to be confined to one people. The power of the Holy Spirit is too great to be controlled by anyone. So are you willing to let the Lord take away any selfish dreams and desires that compete with his call to make disciples? Are you willing to go to your Samaritans? Uh, not just to people who are, are different from you, but people that you really don't like the way they live. People that make you uncomfortable. Are you willing to go to them and tell them that Jesus Christ died for them too? And are you willing to endure inconvenience, awkwardness, discomfort, and suffering to make Jesus known? Because that's the ask. And don't you imagine that it's not. The extent of inconvenience, the extent of awkwardness, the extent of discomfort, the extent of suffering may vary from person to person, but it's part of the call because all those things describe 
dying to yourself, laying down your own agenda and picking up the agenda of Christ and taking it wherever it goes. That's the ask. Don't be self-deceived. All right, I'm over time. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, uh, there's a lot going on in this text. Lord, I pray that you would um, take the truth of it and lodge it into our hearts. Father, I pray that it would become a seed that bears fruit. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision for laying down our own lives. Father, those of us who, who have been hurt, who have experienced things that make us fearful, things that make us feel like we have to maintain control, we have to maintain power, or else we might be taken advantage of, we might be hurt. Father, I I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, would you come and bring a strong confidence to that heart? Would you cause them to know that you are a great and mighty God and that you go before them and that if they will lay their life down for you, that you will lift them up? Uh, We... Would you help us to embrace Paul's words that the one who hopes in Jesus Christ will never, ever be ashamed. He will be vindicated at the last day. Even though people laugh at us, even though people think we're crazy for believing in resurrection life. Father, would you would you help us to endure it and embrace it and rejoice in it? Because we're just so full of that joy. That as we look forward to what you've promised us, God, would our joy overflow? Would the joy of the Lord be our strength, God? I wish I pray you'd make that true of this body, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength and give us courage and confidence to lay down our own agendas and pursue your agenda. Show us what that means, God. I pray that you'd stir up conversations among the people of this church, and we'd start talking about, what does that look like? How do I really live that out? Uh, I pray you'd start with me and my wife. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name.